This is Downtown the Podcast. Welcome to episode 39. I'm Rich Kimball, along with Carrie Haskell from Bangor, Maine, the Zone Radio Studios, where our daily show originates every afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. On the podcast, we look back at a favorite recent conversation and uh, a two-time guest here on the podcast this week from actor Curtis Armstrong and uh, one of those many people we have on the show, Carrie, that to give them one title doesn't do them justice because they have so many talents. And, and in the case of Curtis, so many passionate interests. Yeah, you know, you, you start doing this slash of actor, author, researcher. It, it starts getting long. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's tough to pin down Curtis. And, and that's one of the reasons we love talking to him. A great guy. Uh, you know him, of course, from his many roles over the last uh, 35 years or so from Risky Business to uh, Moonlighting as Herbert Viola, Booger in Revenge of the Nerds, uh, countless movies and television shows, still one of the busiest guys going, as he tells us during the conversation, some things that are coming up soon for him. And we've talked to Curtis not just about his career, but about his love of Harry Nielsen, uh, Sherlock Holmes, P.G. Woodhouse, and the Beatles, one of his absolute favorites. And so this time around, uh, we talked with Curtis primarily about his reaction and response to the 50th anniversary remastered edition of the Beatles' White Album. I told you about strawberry fields. You know the place where nothing is real. Well, here's another place you can go. This uh, Beatles' remastered White Album 50th anniversary edition. Uh, very interesting. What are your sort of overall thoughts on the package? I, you know, I'll tell you, I don't know even where to begin. I mean, I got this for my birthday, um, the, the deluxe box with six uh, discs, as well as the vinyl uh, remix uh, and Esher demos. So I, I've been going through it. Uh, the reason it's taken me so long is, uh, first off, because I had been working and it was uh, I was busy, but also this is just an astonishing uh, collection. Uh, it's uh, uh, it takes so long. It's such a deep dive. It's even compared to Pepper, which you know I spent two weeks listening to when I first got it. Um, this is obviously twice as long. It's two albums, 30 songs. But on top of that are all of the other things that were being worked on at the time in the sessions. And the book, uh, which relates the whole thing and has pictures and all of that, is just astonishingly deep in its, uh, in its information. So it's you you hear things about it before you actually hear it. Not obviously most people are going to say, well, I don't need, you know, six discs of um, the White Album. Uh, that comes that comes up every time any kind of, you know, 50th, uh, you know, 25th anniversary uh, reissue comes out. You go, well, do I really need all of those? This is actually a case where there's a reason why they're all there. Mm-hmm. When you go through the session discs on this album, you don't find stuff that you go, well, yeah, okay, this stuff I can go through. You know, I can do without this. It's all essential. And the fact that there is that much material that came out of those sessions 
gives you some idea of the fact that they were working at the peak of their creative ability at this point, I think. John Lennon is rumored to have said that this album is the sound of the Beatles breaking up. And, and sure, there are elements of that and of of uh, the individuals bringing in their own songs. But I also think you hear on this that, that celebration of what it was like when they did work together. Well, I think it's it, this is another reason to to make an interesting comparison to Pepper. Because, uh, you know, first off, with Lennon, you know, the, the interview he did with Jan Wenner for, for Rolling Stone became the basis of what everybody thinks they know about the Beatles of 1968 on. And the truth is, he was not a particularly reliable narrator uh, in a lot of respects. And his, his craziness and bitterness at the point in, by 1971, when he was looking back on the, those periods, he was talking, you know, like a crazy person sometimes when you actually line up what was really happening. Um, but I, I think that when you look at Pepper, you realize it's approximately the same amount of time. We're talking about maybe six months in the rehearsal stu- in the, in the recording studios. And, Yet, with Pepper, they were together a relatively short period of time. They would put down the basic tracks, and then everybody would leave. And it would become, you know, overdubs and orchestrations and all of these kinds of things. And then they would pop back in to do more overdubs and, you know, more vocals and all that. But it wasn't creating work in the recording studio. It wasn't inventing songs, basically, in the recording studio, they were still working on the old idea in Pepper of, you know, you'd come in at 10 and you'd leave at, you know, 7, something along those lines. This was where they suddenly had the keys to the kingdom. They could stay and start and end whenever they wanted to. Right. They could go as long as they wanted to. If they wanted to go all night, they could go all night. Well, you know, guess guess what? Uh, on top of all of the other uh, uh, conflicts, you put those four people in a room for, you know, 12 hours at a run, people are going to get on people's nerves. So as a result of, of, you know, Lennon talking about that and us sort of looking back on it as gospel, we've, we've had a strange idea of what the White Album was. It wasn't that they didn't disagree. Obviously, Ringo left for 11 days. <laughs> That's been a story that, you know, we've all known about. But I think that under the circumstances, it's kind of amazing that they were able to get through it at all. It's also the product of a very fertile songwriting period in their career, especially for John Lennon, who I think uh, came to this session, these sessions, uh, with more songs than he had brought in and probably since back in, what, 64 or so? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this was all a result of Rishikesh, of being at at Maharishi's uh, place in India, and the fact that they had all four of them for varying periods of time gone there, they discovered meditation and they they were they were working their way through you know what it was like in the world without Brian Epstein who had died in in uh 67 I guess um uh this is you know the this was that period of being 
isolated about not having to be places, not having to tour, not having to record, being in this this beautiful place uh, allowed them the freedom to just just create. And that was the, one of the best things that ever happened, because not only do they have the songs that made up the White Album, as we know it, this was also where Hey Jude came from, It where it was where uh, Let It Be came from, it was where Sour Milk Sea and Not Guilty and, and Circles and all of these tracks that either appeared on their next album or... Uh, or on their solo albums going off into, you know, Jealous Guy, you know, all of those things came from these sessions, which means that the White Album is basically the core of the rest of the Beatles' career as a group. We're talking Beatles with Curtis Armstrong here on Downtown. Uh, The love Beatles fans have for George Martin, we've passed along to his son because, again, Giles Martin, I think, has done an outstanding job of uh, making these songs, not that they didn't sound fresh, but but bringing up the vocals in certain ways and just creating a mix that makes them sound so new and vibrant. Well, yeah, I don't think anybody has... It is in his DNA. I mean, I think... <clears throat> he's a he's a remarkable uh, producer, and he has the ear for it. And you know, he, he is. It's hard to imagine that they would have gone with anyone else. Uh, and the the remix is excellent. Some of the songs, uh, I don't know if I prefer the mix over the old one. Um, it, you know, some of them are vastly superior. It obviously sounds much better. Uh, but for some reason, the remix that they did of Pepper, uh, seemed to me to be, that was one where I just, I sat there wide eyed. Mm. Um, in this case, there were some songs that I thought benefited from it and others that didn't particularly. We're coming up with Curtis Armstrong here on Downtown, the podcast after this quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. One, two, three, four. I look at you all, see the lover that's sleeping, while my guitar gently weeps. I love these these demos so much. Yeah. Somebody pointed out it's like if the Beatles had, had stayed around long enough to do uh, an unplugged session. Yeah, it's actually, the, the thing about those uh, Esher demos is that they are just bursting with energy. You can hear it. I mean, the, the way Harrison does that song, it's almost like he he can't wait to get it out, mm. you know, and I think that that was the thing that they all said from that period was 
they had all of these, and certainly Harrison, I think, said that. What do you do when you have all these songs that need to get out? Which is, you know, the whole question of was it should it have been a single album or a double album? Uh, you know, they just they came back from India full of music and just went into George's place where they felt comfortable and then vomited it all out <laughs> on tape. And there are and so many treats in that too. That's the, the the thing, and those some of those uh, demos have been bootlegged forever. But hearing them in this in this version is a real delight. I, I love the story that we get from John Lennon about uh, Prudence Sparrow at the end of that, and then of course we hear uh, what became Jealous Guy, but uh, uh, Child of Nature, which is so yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I know. I, it's one of those things where, of course, John had been tremendously influenced, maybe as much as any of them, um, by Maharishi and by meditation, and then, uh, you know, and then went off him. And so he had written uh, Child of Nature sort of under the influence of Maharishi, and then dumped it, uh, but realized he had such a great melody that he would keep it until he could use it, which was for Jealous Guy in 71. So what are the cuts that really stand out for you on this collection? <laughs> Again, I, I really don't know where to start. Um, I, I love listening to the development of things. When you get into season uh, five, for example, when you get into uh, uh, things like, I had, what's the new Mary Jane in my head? <laughs> which is a terrible thing to have in your head. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the the uh, um, I love the uh, version of not uh, of the um, good night. Oh yes, uh, this is this is one of those things where people had said, really, three versions of good night. Do we really need three versions of good night? But there's a version of good night with Ringo singing. And I love Ringo's voice. I don't. I, I know I, that's a debatable point for people, but I love his voice. And uh, it's the one, the one that has the three of the three other Beatles singing harmonies in the background. It's totally wrong. The the version of the album, the version that came out, was the version that should have come out. But I love the fact that they attempted three part harmony vocals on Good Night. I think it's just marvelous. I also think it's interesting listening to uh, back in the USSR uh, how, you know, we've always heard that Mike Love of the Beach Boys, who was at Rishikesh, had given McCartney the idea of making it sound like a Beach Boy number. But the thing that I find really interesting is that in the first couple of versions of that, including the demos, there is nothing like that. Mm, that's right. And I'm wondering whether that was something that Mike Love sort of made up uh, and McCartney has sort of gone along with, because there was no evidence of any Beach Boy sort of influence in that song until it really reached the very end. Wait, you're suggesting Mike Love taking credit for something? That that seems so out Isn't of character. That amazing? <laughs> I know it's so unlike him, and yet I just have that feeling. We're talking with Curtis Armstrong here on Downtown. I, have you heard anything about plans uh, to maybe do a, a remastered edition of Abbey Road? Well, I'm sure they're going to, but you know they can they they have 
revolver to do yet. I mean, they there are still uh, there are still places that they can go. I'm sure that they'll wind up doing doing uh, doing Abbey Road eventually because that's you know I mean that's basically the next the next creative step. Um, there was let it be between them, but uh, you know that's a, a more complicated situation because mm. they can't release let it be in any form until they finally get around to remastering and and issuing the the movie and they seem to be as far away from doing that as ever um but i can imagine maybe abbey road would be the next one what's your what's your favorite beatles album oh that's impossible <laughs> I, I i can't even i can't even imagine what that would be I mean, it, it varies. It, it changes all the time. I mean, right now, I've just got the White Album in my head so much that it's you, you, now I can't think of anything but White Album. Now, you got the deluxe package, so that also comes with vinyl, right? We, well, I did get the vinyl as well as the, as the CD, yeah. Yeah, because I, just mainly because I like listening to vinyl. Uh, but, you know, in order to get all of this uh, session material, you have to have the discs. Well, it's a wonderful. And here's the thing: I really believe that this is something. Obviously, it's a huge investment, not only of money but of time, to go through this and to go through the book and follow all of the recording notes and all of this stuff. But if you're into that, it is worth every penny to buy this this set because it really is an education in in an enormously fertile. Uh, period in their lives. And it makes the songs new again, and it, it, it not only takes you back to where you were when you first heard them, but you, you re-experience that uh, feeling anew as the song sounds so fresh. And I, I think back on uh, something I read a while ago about if you look at all the artists of the 60s and even the 70s, the Beatles have, have mined their, uh, their studio work really less than a lot of other artists, certainly uh, nowhere near as much as Bob Dylan or others. So who knows yeah. how much more there is in the archives that we'll get to hear, hopefully. Yeah, I'm not sure how much that is. But, you know, what they have done, I've always felt, and I'm biased because I like them, but I've always been been struck by the the classy way in which they've repackaged this material. Uh, there are a lot of labels that would be doing this. Fortunately, they have control, and you can't do anything without all four of them signing off. Um, but they've been really good about not flooding the market. When they put out something, it's big, and it makes a lot of noise because they're the Beatles, and these are amazing records. But they don't flood the, flood the market with, you know, uh, stuff the way they could. You've shared the story with us, uh, and, and of course it's in your book as well, your wonderful memoir, Revenge of the Nerd, but could you tell the story again about 1964, the Beatles on the Sullivan Show, and your <laughs> initial reaction? <laughs> well, it's a little difficult to explain it, um, but <clears throat> yeah, I was uh, 64, it was, <clears throat> it was 64, and I was pretty much like anyone except I was forced to watch them. 
on the Sullivan, uh, Sullivan Show because I wasn't interested in them. I'd heard a lot about them, but I didn't care about them. I wanted to watch the wonderful world of Disney or whatever it was that I usually watched at 8 o'clock on a Sunday. <laughs> I had no interest in the Beatles. And my sister, who was two years younger, she was the one who forced it, and I watched it grudgingly. <laughs> and by the end of it, I was, frankly, I, I flushed and aroused. <laughs> I mean, it's the only way that I can describe it. Um, it was uh, I, it was an, a massive moment in my life. And has it was the beginning of everything. Curtis, when's the next time we get to see you uh, either on screen or on our television? What's coming up for projects for you? Uh, well, right now uh, on uh, on uh, YouTube Red uh, is a series I shot with Adam Pally and Sam Richardson last year, and my old uh, my old partner Elise Beasley from Moonlighting. Uh, we did a series called Champagne, Illinois, uh, which is showing on YouTube Red right now. And then next month, uh, or I guess March, um, I will be seen on uh, a recurring is a recurring character on uh, Sci-Fi's show Happy uh, with Chris Maloney and Patton Oswalt. So um those two and then one other one which we've just started but um is still sort of on the hush all right well we'll look forward to that uh we love happy so that's fantastic we'll look forward to that and uh, man it's always great to talk with you uh especially not just about your career but especially the things you love like the beatles so uh, curtis thanks again for making time for us my pleasure it was great talking to you again and we'll uh Maybe we'll talk the next time when they finally put out the Deluxe Abbey Road session. That's Curtis Armstrong talking Beatles with us and uh, giving us a little tease about some of the things coming up. I'm excited to see him on Abbey. Yeah, I I was already looking forward to season two of that show and to know that he's going to be a part of it. Yeah, um, makes me wish it would have just hurry up and get it. <laughs> and Anne Margaret, too. She's in, in the next season. Wow, good stuff there. Curtis Armstrong talking Beatles here on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.